Hello, my name's Ash, and welcome to Ear Read This. Tourism is a deadly sin, said Bruce Chatwin, condemning to hell the many pleasant and well-informed tour guides who work in our home city of Edinburgh. Well, today I have two rebukes to Mr Chatwin. One, the work of Alan Foster, who does literary tours of the city and has published his fascinating Book Lover's Guide to Edinburgh, a book which I have referred to often during the preparation for this episode. And my second rebuke takes the form of this virtual walking tour around Edinburgh, which we are about to undertake, led by none other than Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson was born in 1850 and lived at various addresses around Edinburgh. When he was 28, he published the book we are going to discuss, Edinburgh Picturesque Notes. It is a short work of non-fiction which collected together a series of articles the young writer wrote for Portfolio. In them, he records his observations of his home city, explores its history and legends, and is completely frank about the place he sees as not so much beautiful as interesting. Today, I am joined on my tour of the city by my co-host and fellow Edinburgh resident, Adam, who chipped in whenever Robert Louis Stevenson went off for a cough. Had you read this? Let's just no, jump in there. I'd never even heard of it. Really? No. So you didn't know how sassy he was? I, I knew how sassy he was, but I didn't realise that all of it was kept in this one book. Yeah. These big sassy pants. It's really good um, primary his, historiography sources, you know. This is, yeah. you know, what, what was the city like at that moment? It's a really interesting read for someone who lives here. Meditative people will find a charm in a certain consonancy between the aspect of the city and its odd and stirring history. Few places, if any, offer a more barbaric display of contrasts to the eye. In the very midst stands one of the most satisfactory crags in nature, a bass rock upon dry land, rooted in a garden shaken by passing trains, carrying a crown of battlements and turrets, and describing its warlike shadow over the liveliest and brightest thoroughfare of the new town. I think he's one of those authors from Edinburgh that managed to defy being an Edinburgh author and just be a Scottish author. He's not, he's not limited himself to just being from the city. He's done, a, he's done a water scot and he's embodied the whole country for a time. It's fascinating reading about his, like the actual, the bits that are still here. Yeah. Um, Funny favourites. Uh, of his quotes. Yeah. Yeah. Edinburgh pays cruelly for her high seat in one of the vilest climates under heaven. <laughs> <laughs> she is liable to be beaten upon by all the winds that blow, to be drenched with rain, to be buried in cold sea fogs out of the east and powdered with snow as it comes flying southward from the highland hills. The weather is raw and boisterous in winter, shifty and ungenial in summer, and a downright meteorological purgatory in the spring. The delicate die early, and I, as a survivor, among bleak winds and plumping rain, have been sometimes tempted to envy them their fate. <laughs> oh, I love, I love how he writes. Plumping rain. It's almost impossible to find something amusing to say about Scottish weather without feeling comedically bankrupt, but Stevenson pulls it off more than once. The people go by, he observes, so drenched and draggle-tailed that I have often wondered how they found the heart to undress. Perhaps his language helps, for the Scotch dialect, as he points out, is singularly rich in terms of reproach against the winter wind. Snell, blay, nearly, and scouthering are all words that carry a shiver with them. Stevenson was picking up Scott's words early on. His nickname as a baby was Smout, the Scots word for salmon fry. Decidedly pretty, but fractious was how the infant Stevenson was described. Born on the 13th of November, 1850, he was first brought up in eight Howard Place cannon mills. Here he spent the first three years of his life under the watch of his beloved nurse, Alison Cunningham, who was landed with the less fortunate nickname of Cummy. Cannon Mills is a district of Edinburgh on the northern edge of the new town, now containing the George V Park. This park was formerly the Cannon Mills Lock, 
which the city began to drain in the 18th century, a process that wasn't finished until Stevenson was a teenager. In 1847, three years before Stevenson was born, the Scotland Street Tunnel was built, a subterranean passageway which came out at the south end of the park. Stevenson describes the sight of the trains shooting out of its dark moor with the two guards upon the brake. The thought of its length and the many ponderous edifices and open thoroughfares above were certainly things of a paramount impressiveness to a young mind. After Cannon Mills, the Stevensons moved to Inverleaf and later Harriet Row. At 25, Robert Louis Stevenson passed his bar exams and began a short and unsuccessful legal career. Despite the £1,000 he had to launch himself as a lawyer, it was not to be, as Stevenson lacked interest. According to his friend Charles Guthrie, he was not offered many briefs, and he accepted even fewer. However, this period did leave us with some descriptions of life as a lawyer, and of Stevenson's boredom at the strain of having to hang around Parliament close in hope of a case, where one was doomed, in Stevenson's words to breathe dust and bombazine, to feed the mind on cackling gossip, to hear three parts of a case and drink a glass of sherry, to long with indescribable longings for the hour when a man may slip out of his travesty and devote himself to golf for the rest of the afternoon. He also describes the inside of Parliament House where one can hear the pattering of legal feet and the courts. Here you may see Scott's place within the bar where he wrote many a page of Waverley novels to the drone of judicial proceeding. In view of the brevity of Stevenson's legal career, it seems somewhat optimistic that his parents announced it in the form of a brass plaque outside number 17. The plaque read, R.L. Stevenson, Advocate. Here on Heriot Row was where the Stevensons lived from 1857, in the drafty parallelograms of Edinburgh's new town. So in, it's 1767, um, so good, almost 100 years before um, Stevenson's born, I think he's born in 1850, Newtown was designed by James Craig. I didn't know this either. A young architect who won a contest. And so, you know, in St. Andrew's Square, there's an enormous bank building beside Harvey Nicks. Oh, yeah. That was built to be his house. Really? I had no idea. So basically, his his design for the Newtown was George Street with the two squares on it, and then everything down the hill. Mm. As this kind of, like, new, new world of architecture. And he won. He he didn't really have much experience, I don't think, but his plan won. Stevenson's and- absolutely ruthless about him. He says he had no experience. He was totally cack-handed. He said the space has been to- uh, the space has been too closely built. Many of the houses front the wrong way, intent on what is not worth observation. <laughs> I mean, I think I think history has probably been kinder to the architecture than it has to Stevenson's interpretation of it. I think most people are pretty pretty hot on the new town it's pretty internationally regarded as good architecture but i think as at stevenson the time, was a hard man to please apparently so give him a beachside hut and he's happy but. <laughs> stevenson does allow at least one possible compliment to james craig perhaps he says still describing Newtown, it is all the more surprising to come suddenly on a corner and see a perspective of a mile or more of falling street and beyond that woods and villas and a blue arm of sea the old town he said by contrast depends for much of its effect on the new quarters that lie around it, on the sufficiency of its situation, and on the hills that back it up. If you were to set it somewhere else by itself, it would look remarkably like Stirling in a bolder and loftier edition. For the most part, however, he has it in for modern architecture. In words that he hopes will possibly meet the eye of a builder or two, he complains that around Newington and Morningside, the dismalist structures keep springing up like mushrooms, saying further that... Indifferent buildings give pain to the sensitive, but these things offend the plainest taste. It is a danger which threatens the amenity of the town, and as this eruption keeps spreading on our borders, we have ever the farther to walk among unpleasant sights before we gain the country air. 
If the population of Edinburgh were a living, autonomous body, it would arise like one man and make night hideous with arson. The builders and their accomplices would be driven to work like the Jews of yore, with the trowel in one hand and the defensive cutlass in the other. And as soon as one of these Masonic wonders had been consummated, right-minded iconoclasts would fall thereon and make an end of it at once. So no, we're actually in the new town recording this right now, not we to are. give too much of your, your location away. Yeah, I, I think I've already given it away. I, I feel like I've referred to too many places. Yeah. So no, and it's, it's, it's a very nice part of town, and I, but I can totally see why Stevenson wouldn't have liked it. Mm. He was very much a, a roughshod kind of a guy. He refers to its drafty parallelograms expanding out. To be fair, open. though, the streets around here are wind tunnels. Yeah, when you hear about architects winning competitions, it's like to build the new foyer of our... Design half of the city, please. It, yeah, design a new <laughs> half of the city. We've, we, we really think the old half really didn't do, do much, so do another. Send us um, a drawing of what you'd like. And a little personal statement. 250 words on why you think you should be the one to design half the city. Here are three pieces of Lego. Use these three pieces of Lego to design uh, 600,000 square feet, please. Thank you. Yeah, a municipal city centre. <laughs> Complete with um, palatial square gardens. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. The east of New Edinburgh, as Stevenson says, is guarded by a craggy hill of no greater elevation which the town embraces. He, however, does not. He talks about Colton Hill. He's scathing about quite oh, a lot. Oh, because they were still fucking up what was on top of Colton Hill. Yeah, right yeah, they were playing around with it. Still it was, not finished. No. Everyone's going on about how, oh, the Gaudi Cathedral, oh, it's taken so long to build. Yeah. There's half a fucking <laughs> Parthenon sitting on top of Carlton Hill. It's been there for 150 years. He's really brutal about that, saying that they're desperately trying to make allusions to ancient Greece. as if to Oh, try it's the Athens of the North, exactly, don't you know? Yeah. Lord Nelson, as befits a sailor, gives his name to the top gallant of the Calton Hill. This latter erection has been differently, and yet, in both cases, aptly compared to a telescope and a butter churn. Comparisons apart, it ranks among the vilest of men's handiworks. But the chief feature is an unfinished range of columns, the modern ruin, as it has been called, an imposing object from far and near, and giving Edinburgh, even from the sea, that false air of a modern Athens, which has earned for her so many slighting speeches. The Parthenon, Stevenson says, was meant to be a national monument, and its present state is a very suitable monument to certain national characteristics. About, one thing about Colton, he says, Of all places for review, this Colton Hill is perhaps the best, since you can see the castle, which you lose from the castle, and Arthur's seat, which you cannot see from Arthur's seat. Colton Hill, <laughs> Colton Hill has the best view in the city, hands yeah. down. I and think what he's trying to say there is it's the only place that you can't see, see Colton Hill. Hill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, there's, a, there's, there's an observatory up there as well, which is completely useless now, and a big naval clock. Is it there. really just the... Because I'm new here, so I don't know. Is that just the hill where we all put our shit ideas? It's, it's basically... It was the hill closest to the castle where everyone thought, oh, I'll build the next big attraction. There's a few foul papers routines that we should maybe just dump up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd be right at home. Yeah. Amongst the... Um, Defunct observatory. And the... Ruins. The, the closed music school. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the First Minister's old house. I've never been up there and not seen hazard tape over around the music school. Oh, it's because they keep trying to tear it down and turn it into a, a hotel. But since the Edinburgh City Council's offices are literally across the road, mm. it's the one bit of the city they're not willing to turn into a building site. I'm <laughs> real sorry to everyone who doesn't live in Edinburgh who's listening to this podcast while I complain at length about Edinburgh City Council. I'll put a map on the Instagram so people will know everywhere that you're slagging off. 
Yeah. And also, I'll put where you live on so they can come and beat you up directly. <laughs> Stevenson would have had a good view of all this from an early age, playing at one Baxter's place in the long garden running to the foot of Colton Hill. One Baxter's place was the home of Stevenson's grandfather, Robert Stevenson. You know, you know about the lighthouse Stevenson's? Yeah, yeah. His family made their money building basically every lighthouse in the British Isles. And most of them are still standing, which is testament to how good the engineering was. Yeah. But he was already comfortably well off. So he could live that kind of writer lifestyle where he didn't really have to worry about anything but his writing. Round the corner from Baxter's Place at Baxter's Close was where Robert Burns stayed on his first trip to Edinburgh in 1786. Stevenson is generally dismissive about Burns, considering him a poor man's Robert Ferguson. Robert Ferguson, he says, Burns master in his art, who died insane while yet a stripling, and never received his due. The votaries of Burns, Stevenson goes on, a crew too common in all ranks of Scotland, and more remarkable for number than discretion, eagerly suppress all mention of the lad who handed to him the poetic impulse, and up to the time when he grew famous, continued to influence him in his manner and the choice of his subjects. Ferguson was born on what is now Nidri Street in 1750, and died aged only 24 in a lunatic asylum behind what is now the Bedlam Theatre in Forest Road. Appropriately for this episode, he is best known for his own walking tour of Edinburgh, the poem Old Reeky, which is the nickname given to the town owing to its pollution and smoke. A bronze figure of Ferguson was erected in 2004, and you can see him outside the Canongate Kirkyard, heading jauntily down the high street. The expansion of Newtown was relatively recent and begun less than 100 years before Robert Louis Stevenson was born. The history is really good as well. Like I didn't realise when the Flodden Wall went up. Yeah, that bit of town was the countryside yeah. at that time. Like There were maybe like three or four buildings standing there, and it was the university, uh, Harriet's down the road, and maybe a church. And then everything else was outside the city limits. And that's why Edinburgh built up, because uh, they yeah. built it. So the Flodden Wall went up 15, is it 1513, Battle of Flodden? Yes, it went up around then. And after the battle, they went, right, fuck that, we're building a wall. <laughs> we're not having that happen again. So they build a wall around... The city, as the it burr. was. Yeah. And after that, Edinburgh starts to build upwards. Yeah. Like Manhattan. Was well, because Edinburgh is, is kind of in a valley. It's, there's two valleys, one on either side of the... Edinburgh's built on seven hills, like Rome and every other bloody city. <laughs> but it was all built around the Castle Rock, mm. with, I think, Edinburgh Castle potentially being the most defensible castle in the entire the UK. I'm pretty sure it's impossible to invade because it's built on an enormous volcanic spit, and they built a city around that, and everything went out from the castle. Because mm. the castle had its own city walls, kind of like City of London style. Okay, and then yeah. you had the people who lived inside the castle, and the other people who lived around the castle. So then you build down the strip, and then you build down from the palace to the castle, so you got the Royal Mile, and everything kind of goes from there. And the walls weren't too far from the castle on the south side, which is where the uni is and mm-hmm. where he lived. So you end up with a city is being forced to build within a valley, which was mostly... Well, I think when um, Boswell and Johnson were there, the smell they were complaining about was the smell of the Norlock, mm. which they drained over the course of like 150 years because that was where all the sewage runoff from the Royal Mile was running into. I bet they found some wild shit oh my gosh. in there when they drained it. But yeah, when they drained that, they built the new town and then Edinburgh could expand towards the sea. Building upwards meant that people had less and less space. In 1500, Edinburgh had a population of only 12,000. Two centuries later, it had risen to 50,000. Daniel Defoe famously remarked that nowhere in the world do people make do with less room than Edinburgh. The houses, or lands as they are called in Scots, 
became very overcrowded. Eventually, people were building wooden structures on top of the stone. In one house, Stevenson says, perhaps two score families herd together. They have scanty meals and live in an air of sluttishness and dirt. He tells the story of one of these treacherous structures collapsing. The church bells never sounded more dismally over Edinburgh than that grey forenoon. Death had made a brave harvest, and like Samson, by pulling down one roof, destroyed many a home. None who saw it can have forgotten the aspect of the gable. Here it was plastered, there papered, according to the rooms. Here the kettle still stood on the hob high overhead, and there a cheap picture of the Queen was pasted over the chimney. So, by this disaster, you had a glimpse into the life of thirty families, all suddenly cut off from the revolving years. Social inequality, Stevenson says, is nowhere more ostentatious than at Edinburgh. I have mentioned already how, to the stroller along Princess Street, the high street callously exhibits its black garrets. It is true there is a garden in between, and although nothing could be more glaring by way of contrast, sometimes the opposition is more immediate, sometimes the thing lies in a nutshell, and there is not so much as a blade of grass between the rich and poor. To look over the south bridge and see the cowgate below full of crying hawkers is to view one rank of society from another in the twinkling of an eye. In the, as recently as the 1700s, Edinburgh had been a hotbed of geniuses, a place of pilgrimage for people counting themselves among the Enlightenment. It was David Hume, Stevenson said, who led the exodus of intellectuals, merchants and other wealthy citizens into the new town. By the time Stevenson was born, the old town was a dilapidated and disease-ridden slum associated with notorious crimes. Some of these made a great impression on Stevenson, and he could be describing himself here. To a man like Scott, the different approaches of nature seemed to each to contain its own legend ready-made. He goes on, in the low dens and high-flying garrets of Edinburgh, people may go back upon dark passages in the town's adventures and chill their marrow with winter's tales about the fire. One of the dark passages Stevenson went back upon was the story of Burke and Hare. Stevenson's short story The Body Snatcher, written in 1881 and published in 1884, was based on Burke and Hare's murders, and they were not the only criminals that caught Stevenson's eye. In the words of Tom Middleton, readers overlook Stevenson's Scottishness at their peril. The early inspiration for a Jekyll Hyde scenario came from the tales of Deacon Brodie's double life in Edinburgh. Brodie was a well-liked cabinet maker who led a colourful double life, carpentry by day and by night, whoring, fostering illegitimate children, gambling and financing it all with armed robberies. His victims included his own customers. As Stevenson says, Many a citizen was proud to welcome the deacon to supper, and dismissed him with regret at a timeless hour. Yet such a citizen would have been vastly disconcerted to know how soon and in what guise his visitor returned. Eventually Brodie was captured and hanged on a gallows of his own making. Some of Brodie's other creations served as furnishings in the childhood bedroom of Robert Louis Stevenson, where his nurse Cummy would tell him stories of Brodie's misdeeds. Although Stevenson wrote a play about Brodie, Alan Foster, the author of A Book Lover's Edinburgh, says that to say Deacon Brodie inspired the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde would be stretching it. It was probably one of many ingredients which seeped into Stevenson's fine bogey tale, which was written, as Foster points out, when the author was feverishly ill and on a six-day cocaine bender. But there are other possible Edinburgh sources for Jekyll and Hyde, as Middleton says... The story is also informed by the division of that city into the Warren-like old town and respectable new town. Indeed, Stevenson was alive to the minute geographical distinctions in class. Here he is describing the symptoms of an Edinburgh man down on his luck. One of the earliest marks of these degringolades is that the victim begins to disappear from the new town thoroughfares and takes to the high street like a wounded animal to the woods. What, what Stevenson have you read? Uh, Treasure Island, years yeah. ago. Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. 
um, the master of Balatre. Yeah. And kidnapped. One... Oh, kidnapped. Yeah. 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 We're going to do kidnaps. We're going to do kidnaps. Yeah. But I think that um, and and a bunch of short stories. I keep trying to find. I've, it's in. You know, you you get those kind of um, Wordsworth editions, yeah. and it, they're called things like Jekyll and Hyde, and that's all it says. And other stories. Yeah, but you yeah. forget that it's and other stories. And in one of those um, books I've got of his, there's a story about vampires, which is just bonkers. Oh, my dad loves that one. Yeah. I think that, can you remember what it's called? I can't remember what it's called. I'll ask him. I'm trying he, to find he, he talks story. about it semi-regularly. Yeah. Because he's just like, remember when Stevenson wrote that story about a vampire? It's nuts. Like, it's really hammer horror kind of stuff. Well, the... Um, well, my memory of it is... He, well, he wrote Jekyll and Hyde, the most hammer horror <laughs> of nineteenth-century horror stories. That's true, but because they're so, they're so memorable. Yeah, those two. Um, so I think he's an author who's completely overshadowed mm. by his most known work, which Je- is a Jekyll, shame because he's so odd. He's such a weird guy, <laughs> but he's to most people he's the Jekyll and Hyde guy. Most some people would probably be surprised to find out that Jekyll and Hyde even had an author. They'd think it was just an apocryphal tale that was attributed yeah. to nobody, I think. Because it, it's entered into this, the cultural consciousness as being, oh, man's inner evil. It's like mm. one of the stories that's always been around. But also it gets thrown in with, I mean, it's, what are the big three kind of gothic literary stories? Dracula, Dracula Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde. It's almost like they all came from the same period, probably the same author. They're all, yeah. They've all got a similar kind of ring. And I think people who perhaps discover Jacqueline Hyde first wouldn't would be quite surprised to learn that he wrote Treasure Island so um as as someone who went to school in Edinburgh I was not forced because I enjoyed it but had to do Jacqueline Hyde in my English at school and dissecting that book's really really interesting but also it's there are some weird Scottish overtones to it that Mm. are basically being subsumed by the expectation that it's English yeah if you see what I mean if you if, if if you reread it knowing that he's an Edinburgh guy, there's some overt references there that oh, suddenly cool. come into focus. But yeah, nobody would look at Jekyll and Hyde without knowing who the author was and also assume they wrote Treasure Island. Because Treasure Island is also another one of those stories that could have been around forever. Pirates and uh, buried treasure and yeah, uh, Long John Silver, you know, Long John, Long John Silver is not a character that anybody wrote, you know. No, no. He's just always been there. Like Coyote. Yeah, and also, I'm going to talk about the Muppets again. I was, oh, damn it. I was about to say, what is the best film version of Treasure Island? It's the Muppets one. Correct. Tim Curry? Is he? Yeah, he's is, is, is he, he? Is he Long John Silver? I think he is Long John yeah. Silver, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, that's why. Uh, you get, you have, <laughs> you've got Mike, Michael Caine as Scrooge and Tim Curry as Long John Silver. Definitive performance. Definitive, <laughs> definitive performances. I think they are. If you forget that Kermit's also in that film. Can you remember who plays Jim in Treasure Island? In in Muppets? Yeah. Was it, was it a Muppet? No. It's was, someone really was weird. Was it a human Muppet? So weird that you actually might hear his name and, and go, I have no idea who that is. Who is it? A guy called Kevin Bishop. Comedian. He did a sketch show called... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, Kevin Bishop. It's him. How old was he? Well, I mean, like, probably 10, I Fucking guess. Fucking hell. Yeah. It's really weird. I, That's I, really weird. Yeah. We were talking about Robert Louis Stevenson. We were. But yeah, yes, he's... Um, <laughs> I didn't like Catriona. Oh, yeah. As much. I read that. It's, it's fine, but it's not as exciting as Kidnapped. Because Kidnapped has literally everything. It's got a great villain. Mm. It's got adventure on the high seas. It's got 
an amazing supporting character. Yeah. Alan Brick, the the Jacobean rebel. And it's got a sort of bland milk toast protagonist. Yeah. On Corstaphine Road, there is a statue of Alan Breck and David Balfour, the two protagonists from Kidnapped. A less dramatic sculpture can be found at St Giles Cathedral. It depicts Robert Louis Stevenson lying in bed. He was ill when he sat for the sculpture and is draped in blankets. Originally, he was holding a cigarette, but when an enlarged copy was created for St Giles, this was replaced with a pen. As Alan Foster says in Book Lovers Edinburgh, Personally, I can't think of a more representative image of Robert Louis Stevenson than of his lying in bed, covered in blankets, smoking endless fags. Why the substituted pen should make him more timeless is beyond me, and I can't help feeling he's been sanitised for posterity. Erasure of the past was very much on Stevenson's mind during the writing of picturesque notes, particularly when it came to maintaining what was left of the country in Edinburgh. In a great measure, we may and shall eradicate this haunting flavour of the country. The last elm is dead in Elm Row, and the villas and workmen's quarters spread apace on all borders of the city. We can cut down the trees, we can bury the grass under the dead paving stones, we can drive brisk streets through all our sleepy quarters, and we may forget the stories and the playgrounds of our boyhood. But we have some possessions that not even the infuriate zeal of builders can utterly abolish and destroy. Nothing can abolish the hills unless it be a cataclysm of nature which shall subvert Edinburgh Castle itself and lay all her florid structures in the dust. It is, I, I mean, I can wholeheartedly recommend this. I do, you don't really need to know Edinburgh. I think you'll learn some really interesting history. I think it's just, I don't think you need to know Edinburgh particularly it's well. It's just worth it's it for some Stevenson deep so cuts, well. I think. Yeah. Some Robert Louis Stevenson that you wouldn't have read before. Yeah, I think he's, he's definitely, he's, he's more than Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. He's more than Kidnapped. He's more than Treasure Island. He's a, a sassy boy with a lot to say. Thank you very much for listening to Ear Read This. We'll be back soon with a, a Foul Papers and then another book episode shortly after that. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us at um, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Ear Read This for all of them. And if you'd like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon page and we'll be releasing our exclusive October episode for subscribers on there very shortly. Thank you again to everyone who's signed up already and happy reading. <laughs> 